This morning's message comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And the title for this morning's message is Life Begins and Ends with the Gospel. Life begins and ends with the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and the word of God says this to us this morning. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless... You believed in vain. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that you would focus our minds, rivet our attention this morning upon your word. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our instructor and our guide. We pray, Lord God, that you would guide my speech. Lord, Help me to be careful in choosing my words, that I would be faithful to the text of Scripture, and that you would prevent me from saying anything that would dishonor your name or lead people astray. Father, in the end, we pray that you would help us to rightly divide your word and to understand it as it was meant to be understood by you. We pray that you would apply it to our lives and that your word would uh, chip away even more the old self uh, from our nature, and that you would make us a little more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we are uh, preparing to walk through uh, chapter 15, Paul is now... Uh, really uh, approaching the zenith of this epistle, which is chapter 15. Uh, chapter 16, we know, I know that there's one more chapter left, but chapter 16 is, is really filled with a lot of closing details. There will be some instructions on the collection of the saints. He'll talk about his travel plans and greetings and uh, some uh, miscellaneous final instructions toward the end there. But ultimately, uh, Paul has been driving toward chapter 15. And uh, because what is interesting to note as we look at chapter 15, and if you read through it, and I'm sure you've read through it in the past, um, Paul begins this epistle with the death of Christ. If you recall back in chapter 1, for example, he says in 1... 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then from verse 15 of chapter 1, really through to the beginning of chapter 2, he will focus his attention on the cross of Christ and Christ crucified and the importance of understanding that for the life of of the church. He'll say in chapter 2, verse 2, for example, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he begins this epistle by focusing on the death of Christ, and then he ends this epistle by focusing on the resurrection of Christ. 
And so, in a sense, we can say that the gospel bookends this epistle. Begins with Christ crucified, and it ends with Christ resurrection. And Paul, I think, does this for two reasons. Number one, he is addressing some misunderstandings about the resurrection of Christ and about the future bodily resurrection. We know that from verse 12, for example, he says, For if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How can some of you say that? So there clearly was some sort of misunderstanding that was uh, taking place um, in uh, Corinth regarding the resurrection of Christ. Now, we don't know if this was something that they wrote to him and he's addressing, because Paul doesn't use the kind of language that he normally uses when he's addressing a concern that they've actually asked him about. We see that in chapter 12, for example. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. That kind of language he uses again in chapter 7, verse 1. We saw that there. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. But he does not say that regarding the resurrection. So it also may be that Paul is simply responding to something that he has heard through the grapevine. For example, back in chapter 5, when he was dealing with an issue of sexual immorality within the church, he started that chapter by saying, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. It's reported. Someone has told me, I have heard that this is going on. So it may very well be that Paul has simply heard that there are some in Corinth who are questioning the resurrection of Christ. Did he really rise from the dead? Is there a future resurrection? So I think that's the first reason why he is going to address this in chapter 15. The second reason is he wants them to understand that all that we do in life echoes into eternity. How we live in the here and now echoes in eternity. In chapters 1 through 10 of this book, Paul discussed how Christians are to interact with one another in a general sense. How, how should Christians behave toward one another. And so he deals with things um, like not there, there not being divisions among you. He deals with things having to do with marriage and divorce. He deals with things with offering sacrifices to, uh, to idols. And then when we get to chapters 11 to 14, he then bring, he brings it in and he begins to discuss how Christians should interact with one another within corporate worship. So he starts on a broader sense. This is how Christians should interact with each other in life, in general. And then chapters 11 to 14, this is how Christians are to interact with one another in corporate worship and how we are to engage in corporate worship. And then in chapter 15, he wants them to understand that everything that we do in this life, how we interact with one another, how we engage in corporate worship has relevance in the afterlife, in eternity. Paul, in a sense, 
wants them to understand that what we do in this life is really just the introductory chapter to many chapters yet to be written with Christ in eternity. He wants the church to understand that how we interact with one another in this life and what we do in corporate worship matters because there is a future bodily resurrection. And in the resurrection, we will spend eternity together continuing to worship. What we do on the Lord's day is practice for what we will do every day on the new earth. And I think this is important because so many, so many believers seem to not think that is the case. They think that so long as you place faith in Christ, so long as you say the prayer, how you live in this world doesn't really matter. It's all about faith. You say you have faith, you've said the prayer, you've been baptized, you're good. If you want to live according to the Bible, that's great, but you don't really have to. It's kind of optional. But Paul has made clear throughout this book that that simply is not true. For example, he said back in chapter 3, verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Each will receive his wages according to what he has done. He'll say that again in chapter 3, verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will, the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden and dark in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. What we do in the here and now matters. The day of judgment matters in eternity. And as if that language was not clear enough, and maybe it wasn't to the church in Corinth, because in his second letter to the church in Corinth, he makes his language, he makes his point even stronger in 2 Corinthians 5.10. There he says, For we must all, we, believers and unbelievers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is a future day of judgment. There is a future resurrection. And how we live here matters. It matters. That's why Paul will end this chapter, chapter 15, after he spends an entire chapter discussing the resurrection of Christ and how that relates to our own future res resurrection the last verse of chapter 15, he'll then say, therefore. Therefore, in light of all of these glorious truths regarding 
the resurrection of Christ, who is the first fruits for our future resurrection. My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not pointless. It matters. And in light of what Christ has done for us in his resurrection, in light of our future resurrection, he says we ought to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. But he begins this chapter before just delving into the resurrection. He begins this chapter by starting with the gospel. Reminding them of the gospel uh, in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. This is because for Paul, the gospel is all-encompassing. It's all-encompassing. That is not to say that the gospel is all that we need. That as long as you understand the gospel... You don't need to know anything else about the Bible. And that pastors only need to preach the gospel every Sunday and not worry about all of this doctrinal, theological stuff. Just preach Christ crucified and nothing else. That's not what Paul thinks at all. And that's not what I mean when I say that I believe that for Paul, he understands the gospel is all-encompassing, but rather that the gospel is the glue that binds everything else together. The gospel is the thread which weaves together every other doctrine of Scripture. The doctrine, the gospel, is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. That's what Martin Luther said regarding the doctrine of justification by faith alone specifically, but justification by faith alone is at the very heart of the gospel. So the gospel is the doctrine, it is the message upon which the church stands or falls. Luther made that statement because he understood that if you lose the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you lose the gospel. And if you lose the gospel, then there is no church. You've lost Christianity. And so he reminds them of the gospel. He draws their attention back to it in verses 1 and 2. And then we'll see next week in verses 3 to 8, he'll then explain the gospel. He'll give us his own definition of what that is. What are the various uh, essential elements of the gospel? And then in verses 9 through 11, he'll describe God's amazing Amazing grace as revealed in and through the gospel. But for now, Paul simply wants to remind them of the gospel, and he wants to specifically say four things about the gospel in these two verses. First, it is the gospel that he preached. Beginning of verse 1, he says, For I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. That's significant because this is the second time that Paul has reminded them that the gospel did not originate with them. 
He said back in verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? He reminds them that the gospel didn't originate with them. The word of God didn't originate with them. Paul himself was the one who brought them the gospel. He brought them the word of God. And so he's reminding them of that gospel, the gospel that they received from Paul, and thus they need to trust Paul. They need to believe him. He's an apostle of Christ. He's the one who brought them the message of Jesus Christ. And thus, they ought to take his words with great gravitas. For Paul, this is so important that in Galatians, he calls down a curse on anyone who rejects or questions his gospel. Right? In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, he says, If anyone comes to you with a different gospel than we have proclaimed to you, if we or an angel from heaven comes to you and proclaims to you a different gospel than the one that you received from me, Paul says, let him be accursed by God. And then he repeats it twice. I say again, if anyone gives you a gospel different than the one that you received from me, let him be accursed. Because Paul understood that if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. Everything hinges upon a proper understanding of the gospel. Because there are many other doctrines that we can be wrong about and still be in communion with God, be in a covenantal relationship with God, right? We can, we can have our eschatology wrong, amill, pre-mill, post-mill, pan-mill, right? It all pans out in the end. We can be wrong about our understanding of baptism, right? Pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. We can be wrong about our ecclesiology, plural eldership, single pastor, episcopal, form of government. We can be wrong about our view of corporate worship, whether we follow the normative principle of worship or the regulative principle of worship, and we can still be in a saving covenantal relationship with God. But you know what you can't have wrong is the gospel. You cannot miss the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because without the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no relationship with Christ. And so Paul brings them back to that. And so he reminds them of the gospel that he preached to them. And then he reminds them that they received this gospel. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, by the way, I want to remind you that you voluntarily accepted this gospel message. No one forced you into it. You weren't held at the point of a Roman sword and said, you know, bow to Caesar or off with your head. Receive the gospel or off with your head. I proclaim this gospel to you and you gladly received it. Now, there are three different tenses that Paul uses in verses 1 and two, which are quite illuminating as we walk through these two verses. First of all, the word received is a simple 
aorist active verb is what we call it in Greek. It's a simple past tense. This is something that happened back in the past. And he reminds them that they gladly received the gospel when he brought it to them. Don't be upset by my writing because nobody forced this upon you. The gospel he preached to them initially has not changed. He's reminding him of the, that fact. I still preach the same gospel that you received from me back then. Thus, nothing that Paul has written in this book, as offensive as some of it may be to them, nothing he has written deviates from the gospel. It is all gospel-centered. It is all gospel-focused. It is all gospel-driven. The third thing that Paul wants to say about this gospel, which he preached to them, which they joyfully received, is that this gospel is one in which they stand. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. I preached it, you received it, and it is within this gospel that you stand. Now, the word stand is interesting because it appears in the perfect tense in the Greek. So it's a different tense now, not past tense, but a perfect tense. And in the Greek, the perfect tense conveys a perfected action in the past. It is an action that has been completed in the past, but continues to stand completed in the present. In other words, one translation might be, if we want to bring out the perfect tense, the gospel which I proclaim to you, which you also received, in which you were made to stand and continue standing today, by which you were made to stand and by which you continue standing today because of the gospel. In other words, the gospel is the means of grace that God used to bring them to their feet, to bring them to life. Just as Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead. Jesus calls out his name and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes to his feet. And he walks to Jesus. That's a, that's a living parable of how salvation works, of how regeneration works. Ephesians chapter 2, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And at some point in your life, God spoke your name and said, Come forth. And your eyes were opened. And you saw the glory and the beauty of Christ. And you understood the gospel. And you embraced it. And you walked to Christ in And the gospel is the means of grace that God uses, that the Holy Spirit uses to cause us to continue standing, to stand today spiritually in the here and now. The gospel sustains us in the Christian life. How is that, you may wonder? Well, what is the gospel? Paul's going to explain it, and he'll do a better job than I do. 
but I'll give you my explanation of it. The gospel is simply this, that we are all sinners dead in our trespasses and sins in need of a Savior. And we are incapable of saving ourselves. And so Christ steps out of the glory of heaven. He takes on human flesh, becomes fully man, lives the perfect life of obedience to the law, which God's justice demands from all people. And then he dies on the cross and absorbs the wrath of God the Father that should have come upon us. And when Christ brings us to life and grants us faith, it is by that faith that we are imputed, we are credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ and our sins are atoned for and we are brought into union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we stand before God completely forgiven and sinless and righteous. Not because of anything that we have done. We don't deserve it. He doesn't owe it to us. But simply because God is loving and merciful and gracious and kind. And someday we will inherit eternity because of all that God has done for us. Salvation is all of God and none of us. That is the gospel. And it is that glorious truth of the gospel that sustains us through life. In other words, when we struggle with sin, when we struggle with guilt, our eschatology won't help us. Your view of the millennium is not going to help you with your guilt. Only the gospel can do that. When we struggle, when we are facing death, at a young age, diagnosed with some terminal disease, leaving behind a wife or a husband and children, listen, your view of old earth or young earth is not going to help you at that moment. It will not sustain you in that crisis. Only the gospel will do that. When someone close to us is diagnosed with a terminal illness or suddenly is taken from us far too early, our view of ecclesiology will not help. Whether we hold to the regulative principle or to the normative principle or whether we sing only the Psalter, or whether we sing contemporary music. The only thing that sustains us through the trials and the tribulations and the griefs and the misery and the heartache, the only thing that can help your guilty conscience is the gospel. It is the gospel by which we were made to stand, and it is the gospel that the Holy Spirit uses to cause us to continue to stand and not be knocked over by the waves and the winds of this world. The truth of the gospel sustains us and it keeps us standing and it preserves our sanity. The Holy Spirit used the gospel to bring us to our feet and to keep us on our feet. That's why the gospel is so important for the Christian life. Not just for salvation, but for all of life. The fourth thing that Paul wants to mention about the gospel 
is in verse 2. He goes on to say in verse 2, And by which, that is the gospel, by which you are being saved. Interesting, here again, he switches tenses on us once again. Being saved in the Greek is a present passive verb. It's a present passive verb. Passive meaning that it is something that is done to us. And present in that it is something that is happening in the here and now. It is ongoing. It is ongoing. This is because salvation is not something that we do, but salvation is something that is done to us. We are passive in our salvation, in our regeneration, just like Lazarus. Lazarus contributed nothing to being brought alive. Christ simply brought him back to life. He was the recipient of God's grace. Regeneration is a sovereign, monergistic, unilateral work of God alone. But also, it is present. In other words, salvation is not something which simply happened to us in the past, but it is something that is happening to us right now. It is ongoing. You see, the Bible often will talk about salvation in the past and in the present and in the future. Because in some sense, salvation is past tense. In some sense, our salvation is definitive. For example, when we talk about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that is definitive. At the moment that we put faith in Christ, we are credited with his righteousness and we are justified in the eyes of God and before the judgment seat of the great judge. In another sense, our salvation is in the future. And that is the bodily resurrection. That's what Paul is going to talk about here in this next chapter. Because ultimately our salvation is not complete until our bodies have been resurrected and reunited with our souls. Because Christ did not come into the world simply to save souls, but to save body and soul. In fact, according to Romans chapter 8, he came into the world to redeem all of creation. Not just souls, not just humans, but all of creation has been negatively impacted by the fall, by sin, and Christ has come to redeem all of it. That's what we read about in Revelation 22. The new earth, that is when salvation is fully and finally complete. At the day of the great wedding And yet, in another sense, we are being saved then. We have been saved. We've been delivered from our sins. We are in union with Christ. We are being saved. We are in the process of being saved, process of being sanctified of our sins, made more into the image and the character of Christ, and we will be saved, ultimately. But then he qualifies this fourth item regarding the gospel with these words. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If, if you hold fast 
to the word that I preached to you. In other words, while salvation, while it is true that salvation is by faith alone, it is never by a faith that is alone. It is never by a faith that is alone. Paul has made this emphatically clear, we saw, in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We've already read that passage. But he makes it clear as well in other places like Philippians 2.12, where he tells the church in Philippi to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who gives you both the will and the ability, the will and the work for his good pleasure. So yes, God gives us the desire and the ability, but we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Undoubtedly, Paul was getting this from the teachings of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7, verse 19. Jesus said, on the day of judgment, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. If you have genuinely placed faith in Christ, then you will cling to God's word. You will cling to the teachings of the apostles and you will strive to live those out. In the end, if the gospel which God uses to cause us to stand and keeps us standing and ultimately saves us. It is the gospel which does this for us. But those who do not hold fast, as Paul says, those who do not hold fast to God's word as delivered by the apostles have believed in vain. They've believed in vain. That is, they never truly believed in the first place. As we uh, continue to work in our midweek study through the 1646 London Confession of Faith, um, eventually we'll get to Article 22. And Article 22 is about saving faith. What, what constitutes saving faith? What is actual saving faith? And there, the authors of the 1646 say this, Faith is the gift of God wrought in the hearts of the elect by the Spirit of God, by which faith they come to know and believe the truth of Scripture. One of the evidences of genuine saving faith is when a person says, I believe this. This is the Word of God. This is the inerrant and authoritative and trustworthy Word of God. In the end, the gospel, the gospel is tremendously important for all of life. The Christian life begins, is sustained, and is brought into eternity by the gospel. And so, yes, we need to study all of God's word, right? We need to seek to know the whole counsel of God, of God but it is only the gospel that will sustain you ultimately through life. It's one of the reasons that uh, Jerry Bridges in his wonderful little book, the, the Gospel for All of Life, said that, you know, in today's um, self-help and 
self-esteem building uh, generation and culture. We're told that, you know, we need to love ourselves and we need to look in the mirror every morning and say to ourselves, you're, you're a good person, doggone it, people like you. And if they don't, that's just their loss. Jerry Bridges says we need to wake up every morning and look in the mirror and preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to be reminded of the gospel every day that we are sinners saved by grace. Because that truth, if we really believe it, that truth will drive us to want to know Christ, to want to love Christ, to want to pursue Christ, to want to study His Word, and to know as much as we can so that we might bring Him the greatest glory in all that we do and say and think. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for all of that means, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying the gospel to our lives and using it to open our eyes to the glory of Christ. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that the gospel is not something that it was simply needed for our salvation. That the gospel is not only useful for uh, proclaiming to others, but rather the, all of life should revolve around the gospel and be driven by it. We pray that you would remind us of the glorious gospel truth every day as we live as we struggle to live life in a fallen world. And Lord, we, uh, we praise you, we love you, and we pray all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.